Morning. How many of you guys are awake this morning? Raise your hand. Okay, you all volunteered to stand up, so stand up. Amen. You may be seated. Welcome to Warren Community Fellowship and our worship service this morning. We're super excited about a number of different things that we get to participate in and, and enjoy. Part of the mission of the church is to give worship to God, to honor Him, to obey His commands, and to make disciples. And, and part of that discipleship is actually teaching and training 
people in, uh, according to God's word and God's love. And when Jesus gave the commission, he said, go out and make disciples, baptizing them in my name. And that's what we're going to have starting out this service is a baptism. Actually, we have two baptisms. And then a little bit later on, we're going to have some teaching and then uh, celebrate communion with that. Now, this morning, we have two people that are going to be baptized. Uh, and I wanted to, uh, I'll invite them up in a minute, but I want to talk a little bit about baptism. If you guys saw, we had the Sunday school kids come in this morning um, because it's really about a, being a witness. When we think about baptism, baptism is kind of like one of those, those things that we connect with church because it's always been a practice. And it's a practice of testimony. It's a practice of witness. It was part of the Jewish culture early on when, when you were a Gentile, a non-Jew, and you wanted to declare your faith in, in Yahweh God, and you wanted to become a Jew, you would go and you would be baptized or immersed, and, and it was part of the confessing of sin and a number of different things. Even Jesus was baptized, though he hadn't sinned, as a testimony, as a testimony of obedience to the Father. And so with that, baptism has always held something special. But when the church was birthed, Baptism took on a whole new meaning. It was birthed because of the work of Jesus. And Paul, in his writing in Romans chapter 6, would define it a little bit different than what it was. At one point in the Jewish faith, when they would baptize or they would be immersed, they would go through what's called a mikvah, and they would go into a ceremonial bath and kind of ceremonially wash away their sins, and then they would come out of the water. And they would have to do that every time before worship. Aren't you glad we don't have a bathtub out here that you all had to walk through? But after Jesus died on the cross and he was buried and rose again three days later, baptism took on a whole different meaning. You see, baptism, the word to baptize, baptizo, means to immerse. And it was a, it was a term that was used for people that were... Do it, dyeing clothes and cloth. So, like my shirt is black, and and the material it's made out of isn't black. But in order to get it to be black, they would baptize the cloth into black dye, and then it would take on all of the elements, and it would come out now black, outwardly identified as being different or a different color than what it was. Well, in baptism, what we do is we demonstrate that we've been baptized into Christ. And just as Jesus died and was buried and rose again, baptism declares your faith. It's an outward expression of an inward conviction. And so baptism does not save you. Baptism is a declaration of your salvation. So we are saved by grace through faith, not of works that we can boast. It is a grace gift. It's a transformation that God does in the heart. But after the heart's been changed and transformed, how do you show that transformation? Well, Jesus declared that the way you show it is through baptism. And so Rowan and Matthew both have accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, but they're going to tell you about it. And then they're going to follow Jesus in baptism. Paul in Romans chapter 6 says this, and it was as he was talking with the church in Rome, 
they were saying, well, you know, if we sin, we should get that much more grace. Right. So then then we, if we sin more, we get more grace. It doesn't work that way. So what he says is, what should we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that note? All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized, pay attention, into his death. And therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in that newness of life. For if we've been become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So this is a public declaration with that. So at this time, I'm going to have Matthew Cronin and Rohan Kirsch come up. If you guys can come up. I know these are scary people. But but it's really important that you hear from their mouth um, that they've accepted Jesus. This is their public testimony. So, Matthew, you can, can you hold that? So, Matthew, have you asked Jesus into your heart as your Lord and Savior? Yes. And when did you do that? Uh, in my class a couple of months ago, Mrs. Molden's. Mrs. Molden's class, yeah. And are you ready to follow Jesus in baptism? Yes. Okay, good. Rowan. Have you asked Jesus into your heart as the Lord and Savior? Yes. And when did you do that? Um, the VBS between kindergarten and first grade. Did you guys get that? <laughs> VBS in between kindergarten and first grade. Are you ready to get baptized? Yes. <laughs> she gives the head nod. All right. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to go that way, you guys. Back to the baptismal. Don't spill the coffee. And... Riley, dad, is going to come and he's going to actually baptize and pray over his son. So. You guys want to go ahead and head to the back, to where Wendy is. She'll help you in there. And Matthew, I'm going to have you go first, okay? Amanda, if you want to come up here, you can come up here and... Take pictures and all of that. All right. All right. So, Riley, if you want to pray over your son. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for Matthew. Thank you for the gift that he is. And um, thank you for revealing himself or yourself to him so young, Lord. And how much of a blessing that is uh, for us as parents to be able to um, raise him and work with him and... Uh, Love him. We love you, Lord. Good. We baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Everybody. Take pictures. Say hi, Mom. Or you can give Mom a hug. Will you do me a favor and take that over to Tom? All right, Rowan, you want to come on, come on up? Is there anybody else who wants to get baptized? The water's warm, I promise. I'm serious, I'm not kidding. If you want to get baptized, speak up.
We will baptize you whenever you are ready. Rowan, you can stand up. <laughs> we want everybody to see. Let's pray over Rowan. God, I thank you for this young girl who has just been a beauty to watch her grow in, in the grace and the knowledge of your word is. Her middle name declares grace. So, Father, we pray that by the power of your spirit that you would give her vision and passion for future ministry. I thank you for her, her declaring you as Lord at such an early age. Lord, we would ask that, uh, that you would bless her and, and her testimony as she goes out. That all these people that are watching would know her faith and love. And as, when she becomes an adult, she'll be leading others to you. And even now, she's given that testimony. We praise you and we thank you for Rowan and, and her heart for you and for her parents. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can hold your nose. Rowan Grace, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. You take care of your mom. We're going to continue to worship God now as we give back to him our resources in response to his love for us as well as in a song. So ushers, come and receive the offering. Let me pray. God, we rejoice in you for these that have publicly declared their faith in you, these little ones. Father, we pray for them and just ask that you would continue to grow them up in you. And that they would continue to bend their ear to you and learn how to trust you and grow up depending on you and continuing to give their life to you throughout their whole life. I just pray for their parents and their families as they raise them and lead them and guide them. Lord, we thank you for how you lead us and guide us each and every day. And we thank you for how you have provided for us our resources financially. And so, God, now we give back to you as an act of worship and as a response of faith. We ask that you would take this money and bless it. And as we continue to lift our voice in song, we worship you, King of kings and Lord of lords. In Jesus' name, amen. Darkness, my God, that is true. 
God, even though there are times where we don't see it, we know, God, that you're doing amazing things. And God, we see the victory. And one day, even if it's not on this side of heaven, Lord, we will see the victory. Thank you so much, God, for giving us this morning. We pray that you'd open our hearts to hear what you have to say in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would, open up your Bibles to Joshua chapter 10 as we continue this study about learning the lessons that we can learn from the land of Canaan. One of the lessons that I think is important for us to learn in our life is that our stumble and our mistakes don't necessarily have to define our future. How many of you guys have all made a mistake from time to time? More than one. And when we think about this idea, just because we stumble and we make a mistake in our faith journey doesn't limit your ability to be used by God or for God to use you. And that's a good thing. That's God's grace. It's a blessing to know that, that it's not like, you know, one strike and you're out. I can't tell you how many strikes I've had against me. But the reality is that God continues to do a work and His plan. And one of the things that I think is special is the fact that God always wants to demonstrate His power in your life. Always wants to do that. And He has a plan to be able to do that. And He can use all things, get this, including your mistakes, to accomplish His will. Here's something that, that I think is important for us to understand. That just because you mess up, doesn't alter God's plan for your life. Think about that. If we were capable of, in our mistakes, to alter the plan of God, does that make God less sovereign? It changes it for sure. We don't, God doesn't bow down to us. We bow down to God. And within this, our actions don't change the will of God, but we need to adjust our actions according to the will of God. 
let me set your mind at ease for a moment. You're going to screw up. God already knows you're going to screw up. God also already knows how He's going to use that mistake for His glory in the plan. Now, is it in your life? It's a lot of different ways. But God's a good God. And as we pick up here in Joshua chapter 10, Joshua has been leading a group of people, the Israelites, into the promises of God, into the land of Canaan. And God had promised him that he would be with him, not to be afraid to go into the land. He's already crossed over the Jordan River. He's already conquered Jericho. He already conquered Ai, although was there a mistake in that? Sure. He got overconfident and he went into Ai with less troops than what he should have. He didn't talk to God first. And he had that guy Achan that didn't listen and obey, that brought sin into the camp and he had to deal with that. Then they conquer Ai, and then they go to the city of Gilgal. We'll have a map in a little bit. And there was this group of people called the Gibeonites that had come over to visit him. Now, last week, Pastor Tom taught how the Gibeonites had deceived Joshua. And Joshua entered into a covenant relationship with them, not to kill them, but to make them slaves, they would end up being cutting wood and, and doing some of those other things. Because the Gibeonites had heard all that had gone on with Yahweh God and Israel coming into the land. And they were terrified. And so they dressed up as people that traveled a long distance. And they brought, you know, the old stale bread and all of that. They came into Joshua, tricked him into this covenant. And now Joshua, who made the covenant, and he shouldn't have... What was it against? Well, God had commanded Joshua and the Israelites to destroy all the nations that were in the land. And so they did an end around on him. And now Joshua is saddled with this group of people called the Gibeonites that he has to protect. We come into chapter 10 and we're going to see the outcome of that, the results of that. And we're going to see how God will take this mistake of making a covenant with the Gibeonites and he's going to use it for good. And accomplish his purpose. I'm going to ask that, that you stand as we read through. We're just going to read through uh, verses 1 through 15. And as we go through this, we really need to understand, it's God doing the battle. It's, and it's God fighting. And we should never fear the enemy when God's fighting for us. But I want to read through God's word to give respect to God's word. We're just going to do the first 15 verses because 16 through 43 is a rather fast narrative, and, and it really just points out. We'll cover it, but we don't need to read it. In Joshua 10, 1, it says this, Now it came about when Adonai Zadok, the king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai and had utterly destroyed it, just as he had done to Jericho and its king, and so he had done to Ai and its king, and the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were within the land that he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were mighty. Therefore, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent word to Hohem, king of Hebron, and Piram, king of Jarmuth, and Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me and let us attack Gibeon, for it's made peace with Joshua and the sons of Israel. And so the five kings of the Amorites 
the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jeremoth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered together and went up. And they with all the armies encamped by Gibeon and fought against it. And then the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that live in all the hill country have assembled against us. And so Joshua went up to Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the valiant warriors. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. And the Lord confounded them before Israel, and he slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and pursued them by way of the ascent of beth and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled from before Israel, while they were at the descent of beth the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than those from the sons of Israel were killed by the sword. And then Joshua spoke to the Lord in that day. And when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel, he said inside of Israel, O son, stand still at Gibeon and O moon in the valley of Ajalon. And so the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jasher? And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and didn't hasten to go down for about the whole day. There was no day like that before or after it when the Lord listened to the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. And then Joshua and all of Israel with him returned to the camp of Gilgal. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. Question. Is there any enemy of God that is greater than God? Do you believe that? You don't sound like you believe it. Is there an enemy of God that's greater than God? That's right. Then why do we become afraid when the enemy shows his ugly face? It comes down to faith. It comes down to what we believe. In verses 1 through 5, we have the enemies of God attacking Gibeon, but really are attacking God. They've heard this account. Adonai Zedek was the king of Jerusalem, which is also known as Salem, first mentioned in Genesis 14, 18. And he heard the testimony of what was going on. He knew the handwriting was on the wall that we're going to be destroyed. They had already heard about Sihon and Og as the Israelites were preparing to come in the land. They already heard about the Jordan River stopping. They heard about Jericho falling. They heard about Ai falling and they knew that they were done. And then he heard that the Gibeonites had made a peace treaty with Israel by deceit. And now these Gibeonites who were great warriors were joined with the Israelites. They were the inside folk of the land. In fact, it says that, that Gibeon was of a royal city, which meant it had a king. And it was part of this coalition of kings that was in the southern region that was in there. And so with them, these kings had gotten together. It was wisdom and really fear caused them to surrender. You know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. Should we be afraid of God? 
Yes. Terror? No, but a healthy respect for sure within that. And so God had already condemned the Amorites and the Hittites, which was this group of people that were living in this land. Deuteronomy 7.1 says this, When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you're entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, note these nations by name, the Hittites, the Geshurites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Pezzarites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations stronger than you, pay attention to that number seven, It'll show up in a little bit. Was it there only seven? No, seven is the number of completion. Where God says, when you go into the land, I'm going to go ahead of you and I'm going to cause fear within these people. If God's fighting for you, you don't have to be afraid at all. And if God be for us, is there anyone that could be against us? You don't sound too convinced. No, no, you can't. You, 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 you can't be afraid because God's got it. But the problem is the Gibeonites were without God. And so the Gibeonites who were without God were terrified. Should they be terrified? Absolutely. There's a checkoff list and they were the next ones on the list. And so they, they conspired to do that. Now, again, to give you an idea of these lands, I, I've got a, a, a map that I want to share with you within this. So, Jerusalem is right here. Gilgal was here. Jericho is right here. Gibeon is right here. Beth Aron in this mountain range from Gilgal is right across there as we read. And, and just for a point of reference, when Joshua would come, he's going to cross this mountain range at night to get to Gibeon by the next day. All the cities that I mentioned earlier are all part of these cities. Azekah, Jarmuth is here. Makeda, pay attention to where this is. Eglon and Debir and Hebron. These are all the cities that Joshua would work through and fight within this. This is the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezzarites. All those nations that I told you about. It's not a very large area. In fact, it's only estimated about from Gilgal to Gibeon about 25 miles. So it's not very big. It'd be like us attacking Portland. Let's not do that. But the idea is you could do it. it. It's a little bit of a march. Well, these five foolish kings that got together... And they said, well, if the king of Jericho lost, the king of Ai lost, the king of Gibeon gave in. We got to come together. We got to fight them. Now, if you were Joshua in this, you're looking at this. This now, instead of fighting one, you got to fight five within this in this nation. It's a challenge to, to be able to fight against all of these. One of the things that I think is important to understand is the foolishness of fighting against God within this. It would have been better for these kings just to all cave in and say, we surrender. Yahweh God is in charge. He's already proven himself to be strong. But they don't. Why? Why, why do the kings decide to fight against God? Because they're godless people. They have no respect or fear of God. Do you know anybody that thinks that they can fight against God and win? 
I know a lot of people that think they can fight against God and win. A lot of people that would say, well, there is no God, or I'm just going to fight against Him. I'm not going to do what He should. In Acts chapter 5, the Jewish leaders wanted to fight against the work of Jesus. They wanted to fight against the work that was going on. And there was a rabbi by the name of Gamaliel, who was really not so much on the fence, but he wasn't really buying in on this whole this whole church thing. And he wasn't quite sure, and they wanted to go after him. And Acts chapter 5, 38-39 says this. So in the present case, this is Gamaliel speaking, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it'll be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. What's Gamaliel saying? He's saying it's, we need to step back. We need to step back because if it's of men, it's going to fail. And sometimes the best thing we can do in the mix of a mess is just to step back and, and, and let it go. If it succeeds... We can see God's hand in it, but if it fails, it's not of God. So Gamaliel is like, okay, so these, these disciples of this Jesus and this new church, if it succeeds, then it's of God. If it fails, it's not of God. You know that statement was made over 2,000 years ago? I think it's of God. Because the church is growing within this. But his wisdom is this. It's very, very fatal. Notice I use the word fatal, not dangerous. Fatal to fight against God. Why? Because when you fight against God and you become an enemy of God, you will be judged in this world and beyond. You don't want to be an enemy of God. We need to choose well. Our spiritual allies, we need to choose well. And it's better to fight with God than against God. In this world you will have tribulation, Jesus said, but be of good cheer. Why? Jesus said, I've overcome the world. It's better to fight with God than against God. And Joshua is fighting with God. So God goes out in verses 6 through 11 and he starts fighting for his people. Notice it says, the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua to camp saying, don't abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us for all the kings of the Amorites that live in the hill country, have assembled against us. Note verse 7. Joshua went up from Gilgal and all the people of war with him, within this. So the Gibeonites are sitting there. The five kings assemble all of their people against Gibeon, and they're going to go after Gibeon. They send word to Joshua. Joshua, come help. Joshua is like, all right, we're going to do this. Now, Joshua faces a moral and ethical challenge. What would you do if you were Joshua? Think about this. You screwed up. You made a mistake. You made a covenant with people of the very land that they were supposed to be destroyed. And you were commanded originally destroy these people. And they tricked you into a covenant and you gave your word that you wouldn't destroy them. But now, these five ungodly kings are going to attack these Gibeonites that you made an agreement with, hmm, maybe you step 
back and you let the five kings do the job for you. Maybe you delay your, your heading over there and let the kings attack Gibeon. And if they kill all the Gibeonites, are you still under covenant oath? Maybe you just hold back and let them remove the problem. It's an ethical and moral challenge for Joshua. Because he gave his word, but now he has an out. Or does he? No, he doesn't. He made covenant with the Gibeonites. And in order to have a testimony that, uh, that reflects a godly leader... He will keep that covenant. He will not break that covenant, nor will he break that word. And he's not going to allow this to happen. So he assembles all the people and he makes the journey that is there. Now, how does God use this for his glory? Think about this. The Gibeonites are now being used as bait and the five kings that Joshua has to fight anyways are all going to be assembled into one place. What is God doing behind the scenes? God is bringing the enemy into one place so that Joshua in one sitting can wipe out all five of these kings and their kingdoms within this. So by Joshua following the ethical, moral position of keeping covenant God on the other side is honoring that and is going to give him victory because God is going to fight for Joshua Joshua is fighting with God but God is actually fighting for him as we're going to see within this and so he travels the 20 something miles to go down to not fight for the Lord but to fight with the Lord why all comes back to an original promise do not fear them. Do not be afraid. I am with you. In fact, Joshua reminds them and he says, Do not fear them. I have given them into your hands. You already have the victory. Understand this. God's plan is already set in stone. We're the ones that are discovering it as we go. But God's plan is already set. So God can say, I already have given you the victory within this. And we walk in the confidence of God's Word. So the Lord begins this battle as we read through it. In verse 10 it says, And the Lord confounded them before Israel, and He slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, pursued them the way of the ascent of Beth Aran, struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. So within this, what was the first stage of battle? Okay, so in your mind you've got to figure out, Joshua and all the army of Israel comes out of Gilgal, through Beth Haran, through the mountain ranges. They get there in the middle of the night. you got the five kings that are up in front of Gibeon that are all camped out, ready to go. Gibeonites are like freaking out. Joshua comes over the hill, and then all of a sudden these five kings and their armies go, what? And they run. And Joshua says what? Get them. But who struck first? The text says God. What did God do? 
God disorganized their leadership and confounded them so that the five kings could not assemble together in an array and fight against Israel. God did on the inside of all of these warriors and confounded them to send them packing within this. And there was God, and I think it's important, and I wrote in my notes, God refused them to set up an organized fight. That's powerful. God said, no, you're not going to be an organized fight against my people within this. And so Joshua would go through and he would have this great victory. If I can see that map again. So again, we're here in Gibeon. He had come from Gilgal through the mountain, through Beth Haran, and come into this fight. And then he started chasing them. How far did he chase them? All the way through this mountain plains and into the desert to Azekah and down through Makeda, all along. So this was the battlefield as Joshua and the warriors are chasing them. Why do we want to pay attention to the battlefield? Because as the Lord was fighting and they were pursuing them, God steps into the battle. What does God do? God starts throwing hailstones at them. Now, this is amazing. You know, there are some parts of the Bible that are super cool. And this is one. In my sanctified imagination, if God has hands, he's spirit. But if he had hands, you imagine God up there with a hailstone, right? Wham! There's another one. Wham! There's another one. And just start hucking hailstones at them. Picking them off as they're running away. If you imagine the Israelites as they're chasing after them going, what's going? Oh my gosh, it's a hailstorm. We're not in the hailstorm. They are. And they're getting thumped. That one, oh, that one died. Oh, that one. And, and they keep going. And there's this pursuit where God rained down hailstorm. And the text says that God killed more with the hailstorm than Joshua did with the sword. Who was the one fighting? God. Joshua and his group, they're just running cleanup. Now you say, well, that can't happen. Oh, yeah, it can. I did a little bit of research. You know, you know my saying about Google, right? You can Google just about anything. Be careful, though. So I Googled hailstorms, right? Because I want to find out, do hailstorms kill people? According to Arizona State University, the highest mortality rate due to a hailstorm was 246 individuals in Mordabad, India, April 30th, 1888. So much for global warming. Based on a reporting from 1873 to this present date. So they've been watching hailstorms and death by hailstorm from 1873 to this present date, according to this Arizona State University. And I'm thinking, like, who decides that kind of a research paper? I don't know, but they did. But it's said that the hail size, stone size was the size of goose eggs, oranges, and cricket balls. Those are big hailstorms. Second, the second event reported 200 people were killed and 1,000 injured in 1932 in Honan Province, China. So you look at that. Is it plausible that God could kill a lot of people by hailstorm? Absolutely. 
When we think about armies back in that day, you know, they're not hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, but they would be substantial within this. The important point is this. Can God use nature to accomplish his will and to bring judgment on the earth? Absolutely he can. Read the book of Revelation. Look at Noah with the flood. What about Sodom and Gomorrah? Can God use nature to bring down judgment and and accomplish his will? The answer is absolutely yes. Within this. So we can see how God demonstrates his power over the enemy within this. And the battle is belonging to the Lord. Verse 12 says this. And this is another mind-blowing event. Then, so we know the word then in in this passage means that the hailstorm is going on. Joshua is running cleanup. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day and delivered up the Amorites before them. So Joshua is like, we're running cleanup, but we're running out of daylight. You know what Joshua does? He prays to God. God, I'm running out of daylight. I need a little bit more light. We're not done yet. And he prays. Within this. And this. In our text here in in verse 12. It's what's called a historical narrative. So it was written later. But it's reflecting back on the event itself. And so within this historical event. It says then Joshua spoke to the Lord. Delivered up the Amorites before the sun. And he says O sun stand still at Gibeon. O moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, and the nation avenged their enemies. Now, how do we know this happened? Well, one of the things that is important to understand in critical uh, analysis of text is, is it here or is it in other places that speak of the same thing? Because what he's saying in this text is literally the sun stopped. That's what he says. Well, it's not like God put the brakes on the earth and said, A lot of water, it would slosh around. But what is interesting, and there's been a lot of speculation and theory, and I didn't come, I didn't hear one that that was reasonable, other than that God slowed the rotation of the earth. By slowing the rotation of the earth, time would slow down within this. We know it was documented in Habakkuk 3:11. In Habakkuk, it says, the sun and the moon stood in their place and they went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your being. In the extra biblical book of Sarah, says this, was it not through him that the sun stood still and the day became as long as two? And the non-Christian Jewish historian Josephus writes in the Antiquities, in the Antiquities, chapter five, section one verses 17 to 58, Josephus also narrates the fact that it was a historical fact that the earth slowed. We don't have time to get into it, but later in Hezekiah's time, there was a time where time had picked back up within this. It's a great study on your own, but we're not going to dive into the slowing of time. Why? Because the whole purpose of the narrative As the text says, God listened to the voice of a man. Now, what do we make of that? One, does God hear your prayer? Yes, 
God in partnership against the enemy will not only hear your prayer, but He will partner with you in answering that prayer according to His plan. And you get to partner in that ministry. You get to partner in that action. What was Joshua's drive? Obey the Lord. What did obey the Lord look like? Destroying all the people. Was he running out of daylight? Yes, I need more time. God says, I'll give you more time. We'll just slow the rotation of the earth down. Another 24 hours would work for you. And it did, as Joshua would go and destroy these enemies. This book of Jashar that is mentioned here is also mentioned if you're taking notes in first in Second Samuel chapter one, verse eighteen. These are extra biblical books. So they were historical documents, but not at the same standard of the canon of God's word within that. But they do have historical facts that are in them. And so they're referenced there. So how do we know this event happened? Because one of the theories was it was just allegorical. It wasn't allegorical. Documented in too many places to be, to be allegorical. It was true. There were two unique battles that took place. The battle of hailstones and the battle of slowing down time. God was in charge of both of them. And maybe you're in a spiritual battle today where you're struggling. There's an enemy at the door, enemy at the gate, and you don't know what to do. What should you do first? Pray. Second, do not give in to the fear of the enemy. But go to God and say, God, I know your plan. I know your will. And stay the course. Stay the course. And watch God do amazing things as testimony. You never fear the enemy of God. Never fear the spiritual evils that will fight against you. God has already won the battle. When verses 16 to 39, this narrative goes through the remainder of the battle that's within this. Because the point is, not only did the battle of Gibeon take place, but God had said you need to fight all of the battles. So Joshua would continue in the rest of chapter 10, and he works through the whole southern cohort of all the people that were there within this. So you've got to finish well. In 16 to 21, he finishes it well. Notice, it says this, And now these are the five kings that were hidden themselves in the cave of Makeda. And it was told Joshua, saying the five kings had been found hidden in the cave of Makeda. Joshua said, Roll a large stone against the mouth of the cave. Assign men uh, by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue the enemies. Attack them in the rear. Do not allow them to enter their cities. For the Lord your God has delivered them into your hands. So it came about when Joshua, sons of Israel, had finished slaying them with a very great slaughter until they were destroyed. And the survivors remained of them, entered into the fortified cities, that all the people returned to the camp to Joshua and Makeda in peace. No one uttered a word against any of the sons of Israel. So what still had to happen? The problem was the five kings of these cities left all of their soldiers and went and hid in a cave. Well, word got to Joshua and said, the kings are in a cave. Joshua says, put a stone in front of it. Put a stone in front of it and keep fighting the fight. 
We're not going to stop. We're not going to get distracted. Put the stone in front of it. We'll come back and we'll take care of those five later. Keep fighting the fight. And they go and they fight the fight. Don't get distracted in battle. Why? Because the Lord has already given you victory. So just keep fighting the fight until the end. Notice in Deuteronomy again that promise. And when the Lord your God delivers them. It doesn't say if. It says when. The Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them. Then you shall utterly destroy them and you shall make no covenant with them and show no favor. Well, they messed up with Gibeon, but Joshua is not going to make the same mistake again. Put them in a cave, go and fight, and then they come back to Makeda. What do they come back to Makeda to do? Destroy the evil once and for all. Notice in 22 to 28. And Joshua said... Open the mouth of the cave. Bring these five kings out to me from the cave. So they did. They brought the five kings out to them from the cave. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jeremoth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon. When they brought these kings out to Joshua, Joshua called all the men of Israel and the chief men of war who had gone with him. He said, come near. Note, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And so they came near, put their feet on the necks. Joshua then said to them, do not fear or be dismayed. We've heard that before, haven't we? Be strong and courageous. We've heard that before, haven't we? For thus the Lord will do to all of your enemies with whom you fight. And so afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death, hung them on five trees. They hung on the trees until evening. And it came about at sunset when Joshua gave a command. They took them down from the trees, threw them into the cave. Note where they were hidden themselves and put large stones over the mouth of the cave to this very day. Now Joshua captured Makeda on that day and struck it with its king at the edge of the sword, utterly destroyed it and every person who was in it. He left no survivors. And thus he did to the king of Makeda just as he had done to the king of Jericho. So what did Joshua do? He cut off the source of evil. What would have happened if he let the five kings live? Number one, he would have disobeyed God. He wasn't going to make that mistake again. Number two, that snake would come back around and bite him. When it comes to evil and the enemies of God, do not leave room for it to come back and bite you. Utterly destroy it. Now, did he do it in, in private or public? Public. Why? It's a declared witness to all of his soldiers. And he said, we as a nation are not going to mess with this. We are going to obey God's word and we are going to cut them off forever. And put your feet on their neck. Within this, it was a sign of dominance. Malachi chapter four, verse three says this. You'll tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet, which I'm preparing, says the Lord of hosts. As a Christ follower, you do not have to be afraid of anything or anyone. Why? Because God's already given you the victory in Christ. Stay focused on that. So what should you do? Throughout the rest of the chapter, Joshua goes around and obeys God in taking the land captive. Notice what he does in 29 to 39 as he continues on. Joshua and all of Israel with him passed from Makeda to Libra, Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord 
gave it also with the king into the hands of Israel, who struck every person who was with the edge of the sword. He left no survivors. Thus he did to the kings, just as he had done to the king of Jericho. And Joshua and all of Israel with him passed on Libna to Lachish and camped by it and fought against us. The Lord gave Lachish into the hands of Israel and he captured it on the second day, struck it with every person who was in it with the edge of the sword, according to all that he had done to Libna. Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish. And Joshua defeated him and his people until he had left no survivors. And Joshua and all of Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon, and then they camped by it, fought against it. They captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed that day every person who was in according to all that he had done in Lachish. And then Joshua and all of Israel went with him to Eglon, Hebron, and he found, fought against it, captured it, struck it. And the king and all the cities and the persons who were in it with the edge of the sword, he left no survivors according to all that he had done to Eglon. And he utterly destroyed it, every person. And then Joshua and all of Israel with him returned to Debir. And there he fought against it. He captured it and the king and all the cities and struck them with the edge of the sword. Utterly destroyed every person who was in it. And he left no survivors. Just as he had done to Hebron, so he did to Debir, its king. And also he had done it to Libna. And then Joshua struck all the land of the hill country and the Negev and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. And he left no survivors, but he utterly destroyed all who breathed just as the Lord, the God of Israel commanded. Let me restate that. Just as the Lord, the God of Israel had commanded. Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea, even as far as Gaza and the hill country of Goshen, as far as Gibeon. Joshua captured all of these kings in the land at one time because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. And so Joshua and all of Israel with him returned to the camp of Gilgal with that. Trudy, can you pop that map back up again, please? Thank you. So we look at this. He started in Gilgal. This campaign took him to Gibeon. This king died here. Well, actually, he died down here. But the battle was here. And he fought through all of this down to Makeda here. And from here, he went down to Eglon, Debir, Hebron. Gezer came down to Lachish and tried to fight here. But this whole region was all embattled within this at one time. What was a common phrase that was used within this. Joshua left no survivors according to the word of the Lord. There was not to be one remnant of sin. When we look at Joshua chapter 12, verses 13 to 15, there were additional cities that were attacked. Gedor, Humran, Arad, and Adullam. But in total, there were seven kings in this narrative that are mentioned. Why seven? Because seven is the number of completion within this. God does not want to leave a remnant where sin can survive again. The whole point of conquering this was that God had judged this land because of their ungodliness. And He didn't want the new nation to be infected with that sin. We have to put an end to sin we have to remove it completely. 
In 1 Corinthians 5, 6-7, it says this about purging sin. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, note, so that, or with this purpose, you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. What was Paul saying to the church of Corinth? Corinth, you've compromised in sin. You're allowing a little bit of sin still to remain. And the problem is you keep trying to follow after God, but because of that little sin that still remains in you, it keeps growing again. What do you need to do? Purge out that sin. But I like it. If sin wasn't likable, you wouldn't do it. The whole point is this. We've got to purge out that sin. We cannot allow it to remain. Consider your life right now. And consider the areas that you struggle in spiritually. And I guarantee you will find a root of sin at the basis. You've got to purge out that sin within this. Paul says to purge out that sin and become that new lump because Christ is our Passover. We should never fear the enemies of God or spiritual evil because God's overcome them. How did He overcome them? Through the cross. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up as we prepare to celebrate communion. My challenge to you is this. Why are you going to take communion? Do you find... That Christ is your Passover? You say, well, Carrie, what does that mean? Our sin separates us from God. God created us to be with Him, but our sin separates us from Him. God loves us so much that He wanted to remove that which separates us from Him, but the only way to do that was sacrifice. The wage of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. So here's the enemy of us, of mankind. Death. The penalty for sin. How do you remove that? If my works can't do it, how do I remove that? You can't. But God did. Because Jesus died in your place. He paid the penalty for that sin. And by paying the penalty for that sin in your place, He removes that which separates you from God. And having that sin separated and having that sin removed and being forgiven now restores a relationship with God. It's a gift. It's a gift that God gives to anyone who asks. And you might say, well, Carrie, I'm struggling right now. That's okay. We all struggle. But when you give God over those struggles, when you give God over that sin, when you confess it to Him and say, God, I don't want this anymore. Will you take this? He said, yep, I will. God, will you forgive me? And God will say, yes, I will. Because that debt's been paid for at the cross. And when you come to this place of understanding, 
God said, here's how you can say thank you. You can say thank you by remembering that gift. Jesus gave a very specific way to remember that gift, and that's called communion. The holding common. The night before he died, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he says, take this bread. This bread will remind you of my body broken for you. And as often as you eat this bread, remember me. Then he took the cup and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take this cup. This cup will remind you of the sacrifice. This cup represents my blood that was shed for you for the removal, the remission of sins. And as often as you drink this, remember me. How does the church say thank you today in 2023 for something that happened a long time ago? We celebrate communion with a heart of worship. But the first thing that has to be dealt with is that sin that you're hanging on to. You can't celebrate communion if you don't have a relationship with God. And if you are hanging on to sin, don't take communion. If you're not a child of God, if you've never received that gift, how can you say thank you to a gift that you've never received? You can't. But the gift is there. If you want to receive it. I'm going to pray for you. Pray over this. The ushers are going to come forward and they're going to take these elements and pass them out. Hang on to them until everybody's been served. God, I thank you for this, this time, this time of grace, this time of communion. I thank you for the example of Joshua in this text that tells us that you fight for us. We fight with you, but you fight for us. And we have nothing to fear. And our greatest enemy is death. And you even remove that. So Lord, I pray right now for those that are watching online or in this room. If that's you this morning, if you're in fear, fear of death, fear of judgment, God can take it all away if you give Him your life, your heart. It's called the great exchange. You give Him your broken life, He gives you a brand new one back. And it's forgiveness. And you just pray in your heart, God, please, forgive me of my sin. I give you my broken heart. Will you make me new by your Spirit? I put all of my faith and trust in you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name. You pray that prayer, welcome to the family of God. And celebrate communion.
all stand before the Lord. God, as we stand before you now, we thank you for the gift of life that is given to us. Jesus, you are the bread of life. You gave yourself for us. You gave us this, this bread as a reminder of your body. Paying the penalty for our sin. Being crucified. Buried. And physically rising again three days later, the first of the resurrection. Giving us hope to know that when we die, that we won't remain dead. But we'll be transformed and given new life. Lord, we look forward to that day that we can see you face to face. But until then, we want to say thank you for this gift of life that you've given to us by honoring you even now. In Jesus' name. Let's all take the bread together. Let's pray over the cup together. God, we thank you for this cup that you've given to us. We thank you for the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin and unrighteousness. Past, present, and future. We thank you for the fact that we stand before a holy God right now in his throne room of grace, perfected. God, when you see us, you see sinless people because of the righteousness of Jesus that has been put on our account that covers us. God, you tell us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, but Jesus, your blood cleanses us from all that unrighteousness. We thank you for this cup and all that it reminds us of. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all take it together. Thank you, Lord. We have a practice here at Warren Community, and that's in responding in communion from communion to give to a special fund. It's a benevolent fund. Benevolence means to be able to share grace. This fund is, is available to anyone who has needs whether it's medicine or ramps for their house or, or, or things that are going on, we want to be able to show love. Um, and it's the love of the body for people of the body, but also the community. The ushers are going to come forward and they'll collect that. And uh, let me pray over it. God, I thank you for the blessing and the grace gift that you've given to us. As you've been graceful towards us and giving towards us, may we be giving towards other people. May these dollars that are used are used to help offset people's needs and difficulties. We praise you and we thank you for them in Jesus' name. Amen.
God, we thank you for your mercy that's new every morning. We thank you that you fight for us and that we fight with you. And as we go out today, may we fight the battle as winners because we've already won in you. And may the grace of God and the peace that he brings to all of our hearts and minds guide you this week in all that you say and do. May you make God smile. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen, Amen. and praise Jesus. Have a blessed week. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 6.30 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.